0: You're listening to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series is part of a course in the Department of Radio, TV, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. I want to welcome you to our first episode of the fall 2017 season. The episodes this season are being recorded as part of Dr. Elisa Perrin's Business of Hollywood course, and we have a great set of new and returning speakers. Our first guest is Caroline Frick. She's held many roles across the media industry, including working for the Cable Channel AMC, at the Library of Congress, and for Warner Brothers. She's also the founder of the Texas Archive of the Moving Image, or TAMI, a nonprofit dedicated to documenting and sharing Texas's film and video heritage. She received a PhD at the RTF department at UT and is now a professor there. Dr. Frick discusses her career trajectory... What media archivists do and how different opportunities across the industry and across the country helped her on the way to where she is today. She spoke on September 18th, 2017 on the UT campus and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin.
1: Greetings, everyone. Thanks for coming out. Uh, My non-students, thanks for coming out for the Media Industry Conversation. My students, thank you for coming to class. Uh, And I want to, uh, first of all, thank my colleague, Cindy McCreary, as well as the assistants who are helping with this, Brett Siegel, Kyle Rather, Annie Major, and Britta Hansen. So I want to thank the RTF faculty and staff, especially Paul Steckler, uh, who supported this series uh, getting launched, and Tom Schatz, the current chair, as well as Alana Wakeman from the RTF department, and the Moody College of Communication, especially Dean Bernhardt and Associate Dean Mike Wilson. And again, as always, be sure to check the Twitter feed at RTFMIC to look at all the speakers we have coming up, and we have a lot of them coming up. Okay. So having moved through that, let me go ahead and introduce our first guest who I'm very excited to be able to uh, ask a lot of questions that I wanna know more about and hopefully you all want to know as well. Dr. Caroline Frick, who uh, I know many of you have had her as an instructor for various classes in our department. She's an associate professor in RTF, but you may or may not know that her other uh, major responsibility involves serving as the executive director for the Texas Archive of the Moving Image, and she'll talk a bit about that today, not to mention uh, her experiences more broadly in a variety of different positions working for industry, government, and nonprofits. Uh, And so the way things will work today, and this is standard for the format for this generally, is that we'll spend about 50 minutes or so doing Q&A between us, talking about her career trajectory, uh, her roles and responsibilities with various positions and some advice she may have, And then we'll open up for questions from the audience and hopefully you all will have uh, some good questions to ask as well, I'm sure you will, for the rest of the time. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Frick. (laughs) Okay, so first question is, uh, how on earth did you figure out you wanted to be a media archivist? Maybe you can walk us through early in your career or even undergrad days or whenever it might have been and tell us how that interest evolved over time.
2: Sure, I can I can do so. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah? Uh, first, uh, thanks very much for including me in this. I feel very honored to be uh, a guest in this illustrious series, so many thanks. Um, and it's interesting because first, I would normally assume that the question is, what exactly is a media archivist? Which is totally <laughs> fine if you think I have no idea what you're talking about, and much less, how did you even end up there, right? Um, it's a bit of a clunky term to say that you're a film or a media archivist, and, and hopefully this will um, help maybe open your eyes a little bit to a part of the media industries that's not as much talked about, but maybe it's talked about more now than it, than it used to be. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit, um, but from my standpoint, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a film or a media archivist. What I knew was when I was about 13, I started watching old movies in a basement in Kansas, and I purportedly asked my mom if there was something like a librarian but for old movies. So I was always interested in old movies. I was never interested in shooting movies. It wasn't about production for me. It was always an interest in older content. And she said, I have absolutely no idea, I'm sure inside her head she was thinking, freak, what have I got here? But she was like, well, I don't know, but uh, I think that they have old movies in archives. Um, And to make a bit of a long story short, I was very fortunate to have graduated Uh, high school in the Washington, D.C. area where, believe it or not, the largest motion picture collections or moving image collections actually are in the whole world. The largest moving image uh, repositories are not in the Hollywood studios, uh, not in television vaults, but rather at the Library of Congress and the National Archives. So I was very fortunate to be exposed um, to these kinds of collections even uh, in high school. So by the time I got to college, maybe much like you guys, I had an idea of what I wanted to study. I knew that I wanted to study history and film. And so I was able to double major. And this probably gets into some of the, some of the maybe advice category that I might have. Um, I still was studying this. I didn't really know what you could do particularly, Right with, with these kinds of majors, and that's often the case, right? You think, I'm sure that your parents, if you are majoring in RTF, is like, what do you think you're gonna do with that? And most people, their gut reaction is, I'm gonna make a movie, You know, I'm gonna make some TV. Well, not everybody wants to make film or TV, actually. Um, what I found was very um, fortuitous, totally luck, which of course is something else nobody wants to talk about, is sheer luck about mm-hmm. your career. I went to Miami University of Ohio. This is not a university known for its film program. You must be thinking, what, why? Okay, well here's a fun fact. I decided I would try to get an internship at the Library of Congress, because I knew that there were a lot of films there. This was the amount of information I had. This was not impressive. Um, So I called the Library of Congress. I got a contact, through a contact, through a contact, and they said, no, 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 you live in Ohio. Great opportunity, don't come to Washington. You live in Ohio. I was like, no, 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 no. I don't live in Ohio. They're like, it's fantastic, you're in Ohio. They weren't listening at all. They said, actually, our motion picture vaults are in Ohio, because as some of you who've been in my Courses have probably heard me say a million times is all big motion pictures made before 1950 were made on something called nitrate cellulose which is actually a highly combustible material it's the same material that was used to create gunpowder right burns underwater it's amazing stuff everybody knows who's taken a class with me I, I try to fantasize about someday we are all together gonna burn a reel of nitrate film the point is they actually had All of the nitrate films for the Library of Congress and the National Archives were actually being held at wright Pat Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, which was not that far from where I actually was going to college. So my first professional experience um, in this field, even knowing what this field was, was actually because I happened to be in college in Ohio, not that far away. So I learned two things that summer. One, Ohio drivers are almost as terrifying as Houston drivers, yeah, I said it. (laughs) And two, I did not wanna work in a vault. I learned that very quickly. So in some ways, you know, people tell you stories about how this internship changed their lives because they learned what they wanted to do. I learned what I did not want to do and I did not want to work in a vault. It's freezing, freezing cold in a vault. And the only way that I got to perk up during the summer was to listen to original soundtracks of Cary Grant movies. I just sit there kind of like reeling through, which is super fun. Um, But essentially at that moment where I learned what this field actually was and what it could be and actually the role that it played, not just within education or government in this case, but also within industry, right? Because in those vaults did contain Cary Grant movies and negatives, soundtracks, everything. And Warner Brothers or... Turner or you know, whoever it was would call up and we'd ship the material out. Not during summer, blows up during summer, right? but during the winter. So I learned all of a sudden these intersections. And from there, I was able to kind of focus my studies and was very fortunate to have pursued a master's degree that focused me in that way. But it was true, again, a little bit of luck, um, and a little bit of initiative in terms of saying, okay, well, I think there's something out there where you could deal with film and history. How can I, how can I pursue it?
1: So did you do your master's degree immediately
2: after that? I did. I did. I did my master's degree um, right after graduation, but this is something um, that I, I do tell my students. I did not get into UT. I did not. I really wanted to come to UT for a master's degree. I got rejected from every single place except for the place that I needed to go which was the University of East Anglia, again, like Ohio, not known for its film, right? University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom. But that particular university had started the first program in the entire world devoted to media preservation and archiving. So you actually did a degree in media history, film and television history, along with preservation. So half of the week, you would go to classes, right? And then half the week, you would literally go down into the archive and work in the archive. And it was through this very fortuitous experience of of not getting to come to the place I really wanted to come, which was UT. Um, I, remember, I remember holding the letter and just crying and saying, oh, but, but getting a letter that said, we'd love for you to come to the University of East Anglia. Best thing that ever happened to me, getting rejected from UT. And look at me now, right? <laughs> so, so, best thing to happen sometimes is when you get rejected from something. So I ended up getting to go to this program, and that was the program that really changed changed my life, um, was being exposed. In some ways, I know that maybe some of you that are in the course maybe read something about this. This was one of the first times where I started thinking, wait a second, what what are the movies? Movies to me had been what you watched in the middle of the night, old movies, right? I'd watched a lot of AMC, the TCM of its day, right? I'd watched, I watched a lot of AMC. Th- those were movies, feature films. But when I got to the University of East Anglia, one, I was in a different country, in a very rural part of England, um, where there were very, very few Americans, if any. Um, and all of a sudden, being in classes where they would watch, we would discuss, let's say, a Hitchcock film, and they'd say, well, this is, this, Americans are like this, based on Rear Window. It's like, I don't... Wait, what? <laughs> I don't think we're all murdering each other. You know? This idea that, wait, there's this conflation culturally between Hollywood movies right, and American culture, so that was really interesting. Then the other thing was working in a regional film archive because of what they were actually preserving in that archive was... I'll never forget my first day, Um, young women who worked in herring fisheries, right? You might be thinking, what exactly? That was my reaction. I was like, what? Or particular kinds of um, hunting techniques in the Norfolk broads. Um, Again, if you're thinking what, that was my reaction, basically industrial films home movies, educational films, particularly for a culture that has a very complicated relationship to feature filmmaking, as they do in the UK. So for me, it began this kind of exploration in complicating what we thought of as American film history through the prism of essentially a small regional film archive uh, in the United Kingdom, very rural. We, took, we would take films out of the archive um, that were about agriculture in 1910 and we would actually go to farms and we would have a group of people come in and look at these films to help us identify what was actually going on in these films and in some ways that's kind of i've taken some of those ideas and implemented them here in texas which has been spent a lot of time talking about tractors that's all i'm saying this may not be exactly (laughs) what you want to do but you learn a lot
1: cool so when you finished your degree what was the next thing that you next position you ended up doing or where do you end up going
2: Well, I very, very reluctantly came back to the US at that point after I had spent a couple years in England. I was very fortunate to have been able to do uh, some work at the BBC in the film library there, which we can talk about a little bit, kind of the role of an archive or a library in these kind of larger media institutions, but I was very fortunate to have gotten to do that. Um, Came back to the US uh, and I was, um, this may be too much detail, I'm hoping that part of this is to kind of give give some ideas on different ways to approach careers. Uh, One of the best things that I did when I found, because again, what I was doing was very niche, right? I mean, this is very, very esoteric, and I thought, how does one even begin? Because all of my network by that point was in Europe. It wasn't in the US, so for better or for worse, that was where all of my friends were getting jobs, but I couldn't work in the UK. What I did was I found a professional association right, that was about these kinds of topics. And I put it on a credit card and I just went, printed out some resumes, right, old school, and just started to go and meet people. And it was the result of that that I ended up getting my first job, part-time, initially, um, at the National Archives in Washington. They happened to be needing some part-time people um, to be working on some processing some collections, manning the phones. Um, And once I got that first job at the National Archives, it turned into a full-time job. And then I was able to begin building on that. And I was told later that I moved from there to American Movie Classics, AMC, right? AMC, my boss there told me, ah, I wouldn't have hired you if you hadn't been at the National Archives. Then when I got my next job, they said, ah, we wouldn't have hired you if you hadn't had the production experience at AMC, and then on, and then on. So it's sort of an interesting, and I think most people who come through this this program here are gonna say the same thing. It kind of, you build, you start building on these different experiences. Um, But I do think that kind of proactive, going out, um, informational interviewing, this is what I talk to a lot of my students about, being able to just literally say, I know I know, I don't know you, a uh, person that has your dream job, could I take 15 minutes and chat with you about what you do and how you got there? That can be so, That it, it, there's nothing like it, right? Because you, you want to be able to try to start figuring out what is it that you want to do? It's not about what you study all the time, but about how you can take what you learn and your talents and put it into a position.
1: So were you learning most of the skills on the job or was it, were you building a lot on your training with your
2: MA? That's a good question. I would say initially, I did use quite a bit of the, the practical training um, that I did for my MA, but, but honestly, you know, the statistic that they bandy about, right, is 99% of what you do on the job, you learn on the job. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of that because even, let's say, this gets into the weeds in terms of archiving, but say you have done your training and you have a good sense of how X, Y, and Z organization does their metadata schema for cataloging, right? You probably are thinking that is really dull, or uh, what is it, it's actually really fun. But, um, right, but if you learn all these things, you're gonna go to an organization and go, oh, we don't actually do it that way. We do it this way. So I think that, um, in some ways, you pick up the language, you know what questions to ask more than actually getting trained. Same way here, right? If you learn certain kinds of software, um, that is to your advantage, but you might find that in a different position. They're using it in a different way or, indeed, they're using a different version, but you know the kinds of questions to ask. So I think that, pretty quickly, um, it, it moved out of the realm of kind of what you learned scholar, scho- from a scholarly standpoint. However, working at um, AMC, where I was doing programming, acquisitions, the content did matter. And in fact, I, I how to say this without sounding obnoxious, I think that I I think that I did well there because I did know the content, right? I had watched a lot of old movies. I had read terrible biography after biography about, I'm using Cary Grant a lot today, I'm going with it, right? Or Barbara Stanwyck or whomever. And I was able to do really well because I knew that content. Um, very much, but again, I had been doing that since I was about 13. Again, not popular in high school. I had a lot of information.
1: <laughs> so maybe you can talk a little bit about AMC because I know you were there. Uh, you were there at a very particular time for the company, and maybe talk just a little bit about what you were doing and how the company changed during your time there.
2: Yeah, this is this is quite funny to me too. And in fact, I was. I, I've been talking a lot to my um, uh, boss at AMC fairly recently. Um, uh, for a variety of different reasons. And we've been reflecting on all of the, the changes at AMC. Much of, much of the changes, or the, the AMC that you know now, right? That is, if indeed you know it, but you know probably high profile shows that are coming from there. And we were laughing because I had come to AMC because I loved old movies and I loved the programming and, and, and was very excited about this. And I remember when uh, we started doing original programming and I was like, well, this certainly won't take off. What do we know about this? And he was laughing at me. He's like, remember that time? In my defense, the first shows were not very good. They were not very good. But I, remember, I remember when. Well, nothing, nothing will come of this. You know, years later, I was like, oh, well, don't listen to me about uh, uh, programming, obviously. Um, but it was really exciting. If you, The only way I can explain it is if you have watched Turner classic movies, Right. If you watch Turner Classic movies, that was essentially that my AMC experience with original programming um, coming in, with advertising coming in. So it, from, a, from um, an industry standpoint, it was a really exciting time to be there. So it was very, very interesting. We started talking and we could, there was a great blowback when we started uh, doing commercials, advertising, and having to leverage that with fans that didn't want to see that. It, when you think about the term media archivist, you wouldn't think, well, why would AMC have that? I wasn't an archivist there. I was actually brought in to deal with archives because my boss didn't wanna deal with them. He thinks <laughs> they're crazy, and they are, they're very crazy. He said, I want you to come in and work on acquisitions and programming. Well, cool. and so is this
1: just so we can sort of get the chronology,
2: yeah. not, to, not to date anyone? Careful, <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, Mid 90s, late 90s? Yeah, late 90s. Yeah, okay. And so it, I'm fascinated by how you've pivoted from these commercial, organizations, for-profit organizations, to government organizations, and the next step was the Library of Congress, right?
2: Yeah, I went back there.
1: Yeah, so I'm curious, like, what drew you back? How was the experience there different, and what were you doing there?
2: So it's interesting because in a lot of ways, I don't see the two as necessarily at odds when you're working with, in essence, very similar content. I was working with Warner Brothers titles at AMC, and I was also working with Warner Brothers titles at the Library of Congress, if that makes any sense. The organizational missions are very different, and the work that I was actually doing was very different. Um, but in some ways, I had a pretty unique uh, opportunity to uh, <coughs> basically go on the road with old movies. They, Because I had worked in production, I had worked in New York production in particular, and had the ulcer right, to prove that I had worked <laughs> in New York production. I do not recommend it. Um, they wanted somebody who could, who could make things work, right, who could, they, the Library of Congress did not want a traditional archivist. They wanted, they did not want somebody very scholarly. They wanted somebody who had had production experience and could literally um, get on the road with old movies. So I had a very crazy job where I literally was going around the country uh, creating film festivals in uh, each, the goal was to go to each one of the 50 states. Unfortunately, it was not realized. Someday, someday, but it came pretty close to do um, basically festivals raising awareness about the need to preserve old films, right? Old films don't just, we have a tendency, I think, Uh, to come to a screening, go to a movie theater, turn on TV, and you think those movies are going to be there, or I say movies, but I mean shows, whatever that is, right? Because it's just, it's out there. We were trying to say, "Mm mm-mm, that's not a guarantee, right? That's not a guarantee. You have to be able to protect these things. So we were literally going around, and they hired me also, not just because I had production experience, but also because they wanted to expand, going back to this idea of what is is kind of American film history, they wanted to expand um, awareness, to, I think, the more uh, diverse, uh, the more, I think, reflective kinds of filmmaking and media making that have taken place in this country for over 120 years, which was to start going to, um, I'll use an example. I got to go to uh, Hawaii. Um, I got to go to Hawaii for work, which sounds (laughs) awesome. Um, And it was, it was. But uh, I did a, a number, the number of days screenings, events with congressional people, et cetera, et cetera, showing, let's say, some of the most famous movies that you've seen, something like uh, the the names of of those films that are always on the big film lists, right? The Searchers or Citizen Kane or whatever these big titles were, Casablanca, Um, but then I would actually, kind of like if you've ever been to an Alamo pre-show, right? You know how they will show stuff right before the movies? I would create and edit pieces to go before each film that were reflective of that community. So I use Hawaii as an example because there was an amazing film that was made called Hawaii, Our 49th State. I'm not expecting you to know your Hawaii history, but Hawaii was not the 49th state. Hawaii was actually the 50th state. So it's an interesting archival relic. And what that that film was about is pretty fascinating. Um, There was an organization that had mobilized to advocate for statehood for Hawaii, but there was a lot of pushback because of the ethnic diversity, many other reasons, but one thing was the ethnic diversity of Hawaii didn't look like Americans. So this film, Hawaii or 49th State, is a fascinating film because it's there to show Hawaiians are Americans just like you and me. They like to go to football games, right? They don't just work in the pineapple uh, industry, although they're out there working in the pineapple industry, cut to a native Hawaiian cheerleading, right? So we would program these films before you'd have a feature film. And that was a pretty exciting opportunity to be able to, and and again, it influences what I've done here in Texas as well, to begin to have audiences put those kinds of things together because remember, this is pre-YouTube. I think now that with YouTube, you think, yeah, okay, I watch cat videos all day long, I don't think twice about it. But then, you know, people weren't really thinking about all the different kinds of media that we have at our fingertips.
1: Very cool, and and you brought different um, talent with you to different (laughs) locations too, right?
2: (laughs) I work with some major Hollywood celebrities, if you like them long in the tooth and a little old. Um, Tony Curtis, may he rest in peace, uh, brought him to the Tampa Theater with his lovely, much younger bride. Um, <laughs> who, who, my favorite moment was, oh boy, she, he had paid, he bragged about this to me, he had paid for all of her plastic surgery. And uh, her bleach blonde hair, he said, just like Marilyn's. So I was like, yeah, just like her. Um, and Tony Curtis was like, I'm so glad to be here with my bride. And we look up, and on the staircase, she's coming down. And then at that some point, she had a long dress, and she just ripped half of it off, and it turned into a miniskirt. And he was just like... <laughs> so that, was, that was interesting. And by the way, we were, working, we were working there. The reason we had access to Tony Curtis was because we were working with um, Jamie Lee's sister. Not Jamie Lee Curtis, but Jamie Lee's sister. And she was just like, Dad. Seriously? He's like, my lovely bride. Um, <laughs> probably my favorite, my favorite celebrity moment on, on, with that job um, was, though, when I uh, was in the Birmingham, Alabama airport um, walking with James, uh, James Earl Jones. So Some of you may not know his name, but you definitely know him as the voice of Darth Vader. So we're walking, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm here with James Earl Jones. This is so cool. And nobody's really noticing him. Um, but all of these little kids kept looking around. And, I, and so he just started laughing. He goes, this happens all the time. I said, what is going on? He goes, they don't understand, but they hear King Mufasa. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that is so cool. He's like, the power. The power. Because we just be chatting and all the little kids were like, what is going Who? And they were looking all around and it was... It was pretty amazing so yeah that was another hilarious aspect to it because um, that right because it was it was a PR it was a PR thing so it was to travel around and to bring celebrities and uh, to because it's you know it's, it's a hard it's hard to bring in people um, bring in public uh, to to these old movies it's much harder now than it used to be but it was it's a hard thing to do so we always felt that if you could bring in for us it was kind of no offense of course the celebrities we kind of Older, an older celebrity crowd. Um, although, although, you never know, some, some young celebrities really do love old movies, like, well, she's not young anymore, but at the time, like Winona Ryder, I'll never forget, she s- kept slinking into various events and would be like, don't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> She'd be like, it's okay, it's cool. She kept coming to AMC events, because she loved old movies. <laughs> but I digress. her <laughs> That won't show up on the recording. That will show
1: up. Okay, so you go from the Library of Congress and traveling all over the country to Warner Brothers and you're just like darting from major city to major city at this juncture, right? Yeah, so.
2: packing, up, packing up a really, really old Jeep um, and then crisscrossing, crossing um, pursuing again different kinds of work with old movies because I will tell you that while my job with the Library of Congress was really wonderful and totally unique and quite hilarious, it's really tiring being on the road um, all the time, just traveling all the time. I went to Hawaii literally for one day. Like, you know, that's just, it's hard to keep up. So um, I did, I ended up, there's some other things I did in the meantime, but, but ultimately um, ended up uh, at, at Warner Brothers. It was not a good fit for me professionally. Um, I was pretty unhappy kind of in my work there, but it was really fascinating. Um, and in some ways it kind of goes back to AMC where I quickly realized this wasn't about the content, right? Because if, if you're working for Warner Brothers, you could be at some ranks, you could be making this. doesn't matter. It's a product. Get moving. So, yeah, people in LA want to talk about movies and they want to talk about this. But um, what, I, what I know, and I'm sure I see some students over here who've heard me say this before, but um, I, a major director died um, while I was working there. And I'll never forget where one, I heard the first reaction I heard on the lot was, this is so awesome for marketing. And I was like, wow, all right. You know, it's just, it's product, product, product. So it wasn't really a good fit for me in terms of kind of where my career wanted to go, but it was a really fascinating opportunity. And the work that I was doing there, maybe we would call it archiving, but it wasn't really archiving. It was technical operations. I was working in distribution, basically. Um, Well, it was. uh, and, And it was not about preserving things for time immemorial, but it was actually being in the vaults, making things ready to go for video, DVD, and streaming, right? Getting ready for that kind of work. So it was technical operations, tech ops, that was my department had nothing to do. They, don't, they do not have archivists there. That's just not, not what people do. They might have technicians that work in the vaults or in a library, but no archivists.
1: So I guess that's, that raises the question of, you know, how much are archivists employed now or were employed by different studios or where where do they go to find jobs when they, do you have to have a degree in archiving or is it information? So, you know, maybe you yeah. can give a little bit of that.
2: Well, and I, and I would wager there's probably not very many of you that would want to go this direction, but I think that there are actually some parallels in a variety of different fields, even academia, right? Even those of you that might want to... Um, work for a university someday there are some parallels so just like the rise of professionalism in in any sort of area whether it's you know you can work in business but you have to have an MBA well maybe depends on the kind of work you want to do now people that want to work with this kind of content usually do need to have a master's degree and in particular need to have a master's degree in information science Um, That's usually advisable, but there are plenty of people that will work for the industry that do not have those degrees, right? If you want to work for a university library, if you want to work for an organization that is an archive with a capital A, right, then you do need that kind of degree. I think what's interesting now, this probably gets into different questions about kind of where is the industry going? Kind of where, where are people gonna work? If you're interested in older content, maybe is the way I would broaden it out. If you're interested in um, not necessarily production, not necessarily making material, but are rather interested in kind of the, the working with material, it's all about digital assets. It's all about um, how is it that we can ensure right, that uh, the Paramount Theater or Austin Film Society can show a film but you also can have it streaming, you also can have it streaming internationally. You also have all of those elements that are ready to go in a variety of different ways. You have your airplane version. You have your airplane version if you're flying to Quebec. And you have your airplane version if you're flying to Paris. You have your airplane version if you're going to Morocco. So you've already got three different forms of French, right, you start, and that was that is where I think um, the training that you get and the, certainly the work I was doing is in distribution and digital asset management. Okay, So now I have a former student from here at UT, the School of Information who is now working at Disney and so people will knowing what I have, what I teach here, they'll say, oh are they working with the original nitrate elements of the fill in the blank? No, she's not, thank God. Because that job is so that's so esoteric and small. No, she's in digital asset management and I will tell you the craziest place probably to work in digital asset management is at Disney <laughs> because of the global reach, right? And she, she and I were laughing about how many different ways can you, uh, can you name uh, Snow White in how many different languages and how many people typed it in wrong in 1947 and you have to go in and correct that. Everybody follow, right? So, because you now, you all don't realize it but you're experts in this. If you use Netflix, if you use Hulu, if you use any of these platforms, what you are doing, if you use Google, so yeah, 100% of us, that's (laughs) nothing but a database. It's searching, right? And what it pulls up, all of us do digital asset management. We just don't necessarily think of it that way. So that's the growth area for people, again, that wanna work with this kind of content and are interested in that level. You know, try try to think about computer science not just in terms of production, but in terms of how you manage that material over time.
1: Interesting, so speaking of managing material over time, perhaps we can talk a little bit about Tammy. And what on earth, I know you came for your PhD and while you were getting your PhD at UT, she did get in. Uh, Ultimately, <laughs> uh, you were simultaneously launching this nonprofit organization. And what were you thinking? Yeah, that literally and figuratively—that
2: that was not necessarily the best decision, but it has been. It's been. I think part of it was a little bit from the kind of the opportunities that you could see in terms of some of the dot-com go-go kind of culture, right? Entrepreneurial, hatch something. What was so exciting to me was having had this experience of being able to have worked for really big corporations on the coasts, having been able to work with Hollywood content for sake of a better term, but also working with all this other kind of content. What I found was really fascinating here in Texas was that Texas, just like every state, but Texas in particular, has such an amazingly interesting and rich film and media making heritage, right? There. If you look at it right now, I mean Dallas, even today, the Dallas-Fort Worth area produces more in terms of advertising and commercial content than just about anywhere else in the country barring let's say New York and LA. So that some of you that are from DFW might even know, right? If you look at all the Fortune 500 companies that are based there, you know, there is nothing better in my mind than a really good Frito-Lay commercial from 1962. Right? I stand by that. If you guys want a recommendation, I will send you one. But it's those kinds of materials that nobody was really focusing on when I got here, right? And 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 I'm not saying that people weren't, because there are collections all over, but the idea behind Tammy was to try, in essence, think about that Honolulu example, to try to do something comparable to that here, so that we think of Texas film, yes, we are thinking about um, Rodriguez, and we are thinking about Toby Hooper, who just passed away, creator of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? You are thinking about that. You are thinking about Giant, or you are thinking about the big Texas movies and every, you know, every kind of aspect of that. But then you're also thinking about a Frito-Lay commercial And you're also thinking about an industrial film, right? Sometimes when I teach, I teach a course called Media Archaeology, and I'll never forget when I I was trying to explain some of this, and I said, you know, training films. And I had a student go, oh, I just saw one last night at Amy's Ice Cream, and it's about how you don't smoke pot while on the job. And I was like, (laughs) bingo, right? That is an interesting relic of Austin, at a particular moment in time, right? I was like, I don't know how I feel about that, but that's a good example. Um, so the idea was to bring, to bring this kind of material together and not necessarily collect it from that traditional archiving standpoint, but, but almost to create a bit of a hub, because Texas is a very big place, as we know. And there are collections all over. So one of the great things that we've been able to do, um, thanks to a partnership that we have had for nearly a decade with the Texas Film Commission, is we've literally traveled around the state. I have been to more counties in Texas than I can even count. Um, and we have partnered with local organizations with a Bring Out Your Film and Video campaign. And some of the stories that we're getting from there are really exciting. Like Blockbuster Video. Do you guys remember Blockbuster Video? <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no. Dallas, it was a Dallas company, right? And so we have we have a collection that's just come in that's kind of like what they used to used to show when you'd go in to get your videos at Blockbuster, there would be like, greatest hits out this weekend, right? And it's fascinating to see how they're marketing certain films in the 1980s, right? So these kinds of collections next to home movies and in the light of the hurricanes that we've been right, being able to have partnered with Galveston and Houston um, for the last 10 years is pretty important right now because a lot of those collections, if they were just on those shelves, wouldn't be around. Um, today, So it's been, yeah, it's been really, it's been really exciting to this project um, and again raising awareness about the value of these kinds of collections and usually you'll go in, we were in Lufkin last weekend and people say, you don't want one of my home movies, do you? And then you look down and it's like, oh that's Elvis performing in the Alamo Dome, why yes indeed, we will take that, right? <laughs> or you never know what you'll find, you'll never know what you find. We had a film come in that just said teeth. You might say, <laughs> that doesn't sound interesting, oh yes it is. Because she's like, yeah, my mother was crazy. She just liked to go to she just liked to go to cemeteries and look for teeth. I was like, we'll take that. Thank you, Beaumont. Just saying. <laughs> That's a lot. So you know, um, and then you have a lot of you have a lot of kids' birthdays. Oh my God, so many kids' birthdays. But but if you think about um, if you think about just little glimpses, right? Little glimpses. You've got Ken Burns coming out with a massive documentary about Vietnam. We worked with them, right? Because they're telling, they're telling stories about, you know, documentary makers are going to want to use this content for a variety of different reasons. You guys probably don't want to sit down and watch a four-hour birthday party of some kid you've never seen. God knows I don't want to. But just little moments of that can, can be pretty great, right? That's where viral videos can come from.
1: So you're licensing a, your content to various <laughs> organizations. I know, obviously, the Tower film mm-hmm. uh, was something that you provided a lot of footage for, if you guys... Heard about that movie? Um, what are some? Uh, are there particular collections or um, films that you are were especially happy to acquire, or have particularly interesting stories that accompany that people should check out?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose if you think if you think about it, all of them are kind of like our babies, right? In our organization, we get really excited about them. I suppose um, probably from all of our different all of our different travels, there are some collections that I think are, are pretty, pretty amazing. I would say, when I think about kind of a top 10 list of our favorite discoveries, I would say we, we worked, it's a bit of a long story, but we have a very, very, very short clip, tiny clip of, and you guys, have all, most of you are Texans, right? You had to do Texas history, fourth grade, seventh grade, maybe even here. So we have the only extant footage of Sam Houston's slave. Sam Houston had a slave who was a child, who was the only person allowed on his deathbed when Sam Houston was dying. He was the only person allowed in the room, and we have footage of him, granted as an old man. But that's pretty remarkable, because when we try to think about bringing the 19th century, bringing civil war into more of a contemporary kind of perspective, that's pretty valuable. And we do a lot of work with uh, K-12 social studies education, so that's pretty, that's pretty significant. And so those were nitrate films that I was able to fundraise and get a... Um, a uh, film preservation grant to preserve those films, right? Um, I would say certainly some of the news collections, I was able to, after two years of negotiating, I was able to acquire the entire film and video collection from KPRC in Houston. Uh, so those of you that grew up with with maybe KPRC, um, KPRC is a, re- a really interesting broadcasting legacy for a number of different reasons. Um, in terms of a political dynasty that had owned the station for a very long time, but it also served as NASA's home base. So anywhere around the world in the 1960s, if you're watching the moon landing, that came from KPRC. Um, so that material is literally untouched. No one has really looked at that um, since, the, since the films were produced. Of course, the first film that we digitized out of that collection, I shouldn't even, my team was so mad at me because we have NASA, we have all of Houston's history, and I was like, oh look, this is a film about Mickey Rooney's stunt double. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, I understand that. Mickey Rooney is a terrible actor, may he rest in peace, terrible actor, terrible actor. (laughs) And I was like, Mickey Rooney's stunt double, it's a terrible film that we have, but it's really interesting. Mickey Rooney's stunt double ended up owning a gas station in Houston, that's all I'm saying. (laughs) <laughs> so, you, never, you never know what you're going to find. Do I know anything more about NASA? I do not, but I do know that that guy, oh, he also, he owned a gas station and he also um, did court, court, cat portraits.
1: As one does.
2: You can look that up yeah. when you're
1: bored. <laughs> Very cool. And and it is worth noting that, you know, she has a whole staff that of how many people were
2: for Well, we do. We, we do do work a lot with students. So in case mm-hmm. any of this sounds remotely interesting, um, let me know. Uh, but we have about a, a five person team and then we work with students, primarily graduate students, but quite a few undergrads as well, um, uh, both in RTF but also in the School of Information. So we work with a lot of folks. Um, Cause we also do, we also, it's a, it's a lean, it's a very small lean um, group. And we do a lot of different things, um, but we do, we do love to have help with a lot of the research around who was mickey rooney's stunt double um (laughs) we've been working a lot with the khou collection um out of houston as well and um i'm going to tell you this houston you have a lot of cd murders so we're doing a lot of research right now on really cd murders um that are taking place so we need people to help us with that tagging various content Um, but we do have a a kind of core team of about five
1: cool well i'm going to ask one more question then open it up for others who might have questions Uh, just any recommendations you've been peppering throughout some really great recommendations, but any final recommendations you have for people about uh, if you knew then what you know now or uh, things that you would advise them to consider while they're in undergrad, especially?
2: Well, I think... I know everybody says this to you, and it can get so irritating. I'm sorry. But I think the more... The more that you can be entrepreneurial, and I think that's one of the great things about being here at UT. I think it fosters that sense. But I think the more you can be entrepreneurial and be proactive about pursuing things that are of interest to you, right? The best thing that ever happened to me was that my mother, not that I did, that my mother said, you know, get on the phone. If you, She said to me, what, is, what would be your dream job? And I said, obviously programming at AMC. She's like, all right, figure it out. And I was like, are you insane? Like, My family didn't have anything to do. We were from rural Kansas. Like, We didn't have anything to do with any of this. And she's like, figure out a connection, figure out a connection. And sure enough, by calling around, talking to various people, I finally got the name of somebody, and I did, and I'm not advocating this, but I I got in touch and I said, is there any way, I'm gonna be in New York next week. I was not gonna be in New York next week. And I said, is there any way I could could maybe take 15 minutes of your time? And to my surprise, He said, yeah, I'll give you that. So I booked a train ticket, got up there. Now, it didn't happen overnight, but two years later, I got that job. And I think that the more you can just do that, again, not in an aggressive way, one of the things I hear all the time, I I hear all the time, whether it's in LA or New York, DC, wherever, Chicago, people say, we love hiring UT students. We love hiring UT students because they're excited they're interested, they ask great questions. Um, and I think that's, that is who you guys are. And I think the more you can kind of cultivate that, the, the better off you can be. But be proactive. The jobs don't just come to you. They w- you will not find most jobs by just putting in your resume at something. If you really wanna go for it, you've got, you've got to reach out and, and to be proactive. And again, a lot of this comes also from internships, I feel sometimes, particularly within the College of Communication, we don't necessarily cultivate that as much as we should, but I highly, highly recommend, if you can, to do internships. Because a lot of this is in, in terms of not only just in terms of networking, networking, which can sound a bit crass <coughs> or shallow, shouldn't, but it does, but it's also trying to figure out what you want to do. Like I said, my first internship was not interesting because of what I did do, it's what I realized I didn't want to do. I did not want to wear a parka and be involved. And there are some people that love that, I hated it, and I knew that I would end up doing outreach and education with archives, not vault management. Does that make (laughs) sense? Yeah. Yeah,
1: No, that's great. Uh, Thank you. And I'm gonna now open it up for some questions.
3: Hi, uh, I'm Katerina. I'm a senior here. Um, I found it really interesting when you were talking about when you were grappling between going to work for the Academy or Warner Brothers. And you talked about this like justification for low compensation based on like our passion. And I think a lot of us sitting in this room, no matter what industry want to work in, like I want to work in music, a lot of people want to work in films, TV and Movies and such, we're all kind of preparing for this low salary and preparing for this like paycheck to paycheck living in New York in a shoebox life. And so I'm curious as to like what you have to say for us. Postgrads so want to jump into the workforce. Um, when you know we outgrow this, you know, c- like you were older when they were telling you that and I think that's ridiculous. Like yes, you're passionate, but it means you should be getting paid fairly. And so I'm just curious, I want you think of this like low compensation model for entertainment industries and like how do we grapple it?
2: It's a great question, it's a great question. And, and the saddest part is, I don't think it's gonna get any better in the short term. And why? Because I think probably in the course of this, in the course of this course, that didn't sound good, in the course of this class, right, that many of you are taking, you're gonna talk about how the, the, the financial model dropped out, right, in the 90s and in the early 2000s, the financial model dropped. out. So in some ways it's even worse than it used to be. Um, because I think a lot of these industries are trying to figure out how to make money. Even a company like Warner Brothers, you think, oh, you've got tons of money. Well, each department doesn't necessarily have money. So it's a very fraught question. And I think that the saddest part is, and I I see that, in fact, uh, Dr. Perrin and I have talked about this a lot. What's so sobering is that sometimes the really cush jobs in the media industries are for those that have the money, right? I met so many people who, I was like, well, what do you do? And they're like, well... I manage my money, and then I work in production. I was like, manage your money, trust fund. Kids who had the ability to hang out and do those kinds of jobs. I couldn't, I didn't have that kind of um, safety net. Okay, but I think it is worth pursuing. I do, all cynical, cynicism aside, I think you do have to pursue that because you don't know where it will go. You never know, right? And I, I earned enough, did I share a room until far later in life than I had planned with my <laughs> college roommate? Yeah, I did. Um, but I wouldn't trade that for anything. I wouldn't trade that for anything. But I do think there is there will come a time, right, where you do, you look at that career trajectory and you say, what are my values? Because what we're really talking about are values. I'm not sure that the media industries, you know, it, it makes a great press story to say so-and-so signed and made this much money, but that's a really small percentage. Most people working for the studios do not make very much money in LA. They don't. It's a, it's a it's a job just like any other. You go work in a bank, probably make about the same, right? You're just working in a different industry. So I don't necessarily have great advice. I don't know that it's one of those things where you can advocate for more, but that's why there, that's why there are unions in these industries. The unions may not do very well. The guilds may not do very well over time, but that's essentially why they came about, right, was, was exploitation. So I'm, I'm very <coughs> empathetic, but I do think that if you can, it's worth pursuing for a while because I don't think you will regret it.
3: Um, So you talked a little bit about your work in programming at AMC, and I'm kind of wondering, like, with this growing demand for content and this growing demand for the availability of content, how are you finding um, that companies like Warner Brothers or even Criterion are kind of balancing um, preserving and restoring film for the public good with monetizing this content and seeing it as really valuable digital assets?
2: That is a hardcore...
3: Impressive question. I'm not, sure
2: that, I'm not sure that my colleagues would have articulated it as beautifully. Um, that, is a, that is a really interesting question. I will plug my course, Media Archaeology, next semester if you're around, um, where we, get, we debate these. We literally do like a case study with a criterion film and say, okay, well, is this a criterion film? Who actually owns this film? And where are they getting this? And what does preserved and restored mean, right? It is a very tenuous balance. I would say that with, with my true archival nerd hat on, that what we are seeing, I think, is a pretty important transition between the idea of preserving something in its, in its form, right? So in a museum kind of sense, where you say, okay, here is a film, 35 millimeter negative. We're going to put it in a vault, and we're going to hold onto it there. We're transitioning out of that pretty profoundly, I think, to a model where lots of copies keep stuff safe. They call it the locks model, where it's copy after copy after copy, if that makes any sense. So when you start seeing, okay, well, if you've seen 15 different versions of the movie Fill in the Blank or, right, that means there are different copies preserved in different places. So the Library of Congress that has a mission to protect American treasures for time immemorial, they're gonna be concerned about that film in its original format. Criterion couldn't care less, because Criterion wants to sell you a DVD or a subscription to whatever current thing, there's like 15 ways to watch Criterion right now, I can't keep up, but they wanna sell a subscription. So they're not really concerned about that. They may say that they do, because it makes for great marketing. But I think that the organizations that have a different Mission is a kind of funky term, but that have a different a different priority in terms of what they are about are still working to do that. And in fact, um, I am on the National Film Preservation Board of the Library of Congress, and one of the things we do is we sit down with we sit down with the studios, and we say, "All right, what's what's happening here? You know, how how can we work together?" And and for the most part, that is that is happening. But it's a really good question, and I would say. One, one of the things I really like in teaching film history courses here is to get you guys thinking exactly like that. To say, well, okay, if we buy, if we, nobody buys DVDs, I still buy DVDs, but right, if, if, if I download this uh, latest restored print of or copy of X film, what does that actually mean? Where does that come from? Who's been involved in this? Particularly with television, particularly with television because often the versions that you are getting are not actually what originally aired for a variety of different underlying IP reasons and all that sort of thing. So you always wanna think about, okay, in the same way that you do research and you question a document and when you write a paper you think, oh wait, well how do I quote from this? Always think about that with media as well because you have different versions. There's no set version, right? Because there's somebody like me in there mucking around. is what, (laughs) you know, I mean, I remember seeing a paper about the use of color in a particular film and I started laughing because I was like, oh, I did the color on that DVD that they're using. I had sat in the lab and was like, yeah, that's too red. Let's bring it down a point. The director wasn't there. Hey, what do I know? <laughs> Not a thing, right? Or black and white movies, you're like, mm, that's, that's a little contrasty. Let's do something here. So you always think about who's been in there messing around with the product.
0: So I've heard the argument uh, that one of the kind of causes for the lack of originality in the kind of Hollywood movies, maybe in the last few years or so, has been this kind of modern trend of stronger copyright laws or regulation for intellectual property. Uh, Would you agree with that? Or do you think there's, I guess, stronger forces, I guess, at bay that are causing our such lack of originality?
2: Wow, that is a very big, good question. (laughs) The, the irony, I think, um, the best course I ever took in a university setting, hands down, was I got to take a copyright class over at UT Law School. Best class I ever took because it blew my mind, right? It blew my mind because it is so complex. Intellectual property, copyright, et cetera, et cetera. And the irony of copyright is that the purpose of copyright is to foster creativity. It's to foster actually the opposite of what we think of as intellectual property. The idea is that you can only control it for a certain amount of time and it's to foster creativity that you can own it all, right? That's the idea behind it. I think in terms of its, its effect in terms of creativity within the, the let's say, the film Industry that's very complicated because I think you have to think about the economics and you have to think about the market and you have to think about the dwindling, as most of you know. When was the last time you went to go see a movie? You know, it's, I think that there are larger there are larger issues at at bay there. But I think that copyright, when you look at the implications on the industry, maybe the larger question is kind of what what's the role of copyright today? I would argue that the biggest concern is about piracy and about what's happening. Um, when the studios can't make the money off of those big films anymore, and I'm talking, I'm talking Avengers, I'm talking about whatever that is. If they can't make the money, that's where you start seeing the fallout, right? In the same way that it happened with the music industry, that if you start not making the money, how does all this create? Because a lot, for a long time, actually getting back to Criterion and others, um, the studios were helping subsidize the Library of Congress work or all these other, and, and that's where you're starting to see they don't have the money anymore to do that. Um, so. The, I saw a presentation last year, about, about this time last year, where the Copyright Office of the Library of Congress was talking about the biggest concerns by the studios, and that was it. It was, it was absolutely, not necessarily defending their control over older content, but it was what happens when overnight um, the latest Avengers movie is uploaded to YouTube, they do a takedown notice, and there's five more up the next, right? So I think that's gonna be, that has in some ways, I think far greater implications. Okay. really good questions though. Yeah. I'm beyond impressed
0: yeah: Hey, um, so this morning on the bus, I was reading an article about, uh, about the obsession that we have with taking photos of our food and posting them on Instagram, and it was talking about mm-hmm. um, and uh, like a food historian and this is a question just as an archivist, um, what is, they said that basically, the one thing that we don't do enough is take pictures of our leftovers, which I thought was interesting, but he said it taught, you know, it teaches us, us a lot about our dietary habits and going forward in history. So what is like the leftover selfie equivalent for like a film archivist kind of, like the little moments that we don't forget, but that later on become those big things for archivists?
2: You know, that is a really good question. I you never know. One of the most fascinating things for me is, is the inability for archivists to ever uh, get a sense of what people are gonna be most interested in, if that makes sense, if there's like an inverse there. Um, which is why for many, many years, archivists, media archivists were like, just save everything, you're gonna save everything, because you can't possibly have a clue with what the next thing is gonna be. Now that is not doable, and that's crazy making, um, But I think, I I think that that's, what's interesting is that I think traditional archivists would say, we can't make that call because we don't know what people are going to be most interested in. Um, I have found it probably, the way I would answer it, is uh, somehow the most mundane of the images can end up being the most unique. Because what you find, particularly with old home movies, and by that I mean film, Weird things, Halloween. Nobody filmed Halloween, why? Because it was really hard to shoot. You have holidays and birthdays, a 4th of July parade. In Texas, a lot of hunting trophies. (laughs) A lot of deer heads, Um, snake for dinner, interesting. Um, But you don't have Halloween because it was too hard to shoot. So we find we get really excited when we see Halloween. We're like, that person really knew how to work the camera and the lights and all this. Um, one really good example of things that you don't necessarily realize maybe a leftover, this was a true leftover, and we, we use this as, a, as an example all the time. There, uh, I think people that work in film like to talk a lot about home movies, but home movies were very short. What's really not short? A home video, and you know what I am talking about, because your parents, or you yourself, right, have been filming, and then later you're like, why did I take two hours of this, right? So home videos, we have a home video from the 90s, probably late 90s. I think the guy was packing for college, and he had the camcorder up on a tripod, and he had his bag, like a duffel bag, and the radio was playing hours. He forgot the camera was on. <laughs> and So all you have is this duffel bag. Now, what do you do with that? I don't think it's going to be of importance, but if somebody said to me years and years later, you know, I'm thinking about doing a documentary on the college experience in the late 1990s. Do you have any footage? I'd be like, yeah, this one. Right? <laughs> Here's this moment captured in time. Um, we didn't keep it, but I'm just saying, you never know, you never know what I think people are going to want to see. And I think that this, this selfie phenomenon is going to be really interesting because who's keeping all that? Should we be keeping all that? Like. And also, what is YouTube up to? I'm interested. You, I mean, I don't know what YouTube's up to. Nobody has a clue what YouTube's up to. You upload a video up there, you've given them the right to your video, and they can keep that forever. Fifty years, somebody might turn around. So YouTube will turn around or whatever, and they'll be like, ha, 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 here's this really funny video, and it's yours that you took in high school. Nobody knows. Are they deleting it? No clue. It's going to be very interesting. And the same, of course, with Instagram and all these companies. What are they doing with it? Nobody knows. If you know, get in
3: touch. Yeah. I know we were talking earlier about um, like kind of how you like you had a hand in like color in a specific oh, film uh-huh. that has like a direct correlation with film. Like, where do you see that going in the future? Like in the future, does is a director's vision going to be seen out all the way through like the archival process because it's digital, or do you think like?
2: Oh, you say? Did you say the director would see? Yeah, because you, you were like
3: the director wasn't there. I was. You were able to change oh. colors inside of like of that film that you were archiving. But like, we're changing to if we are digitally archiving things, uh, does that kind of go away, or is there like a component there too?
2: Components there too. Um, part of it, and in some cases, the du- the cinematographer—not even the director, right—the cinematographer be there. I think that it has to do with kind of the, the multiplicity of values of all the different kind of media. You're talking about some made for TV um, kids program, you know, and there are 50 episodes. No, you're not going to have somebody who's paying close attention. But if you've got the latest um, uh, film from George Clooney, he is going to be all over this, right? And he is going to, and his cinematographer, and whatever that is, it gets into kind of the, I would argue it has to do with kind of the canonization of various things. So if you buy the, the, latest version of The Restored Godfather, well, yeah, they have had a hand in that, but you're not gonna say that for a really bad B-Western that TCM programmed at two o'clock in the morning, right? That's just not, it's not even humanly possible. I think there's a tendency, there's still, even, even in 2017, we have this kind of like utopian perspective on digital, but there is digital rot, right? There, digital is not gonna be preserved forever and ever. In my world, right? Um, you have people now that are talking about laser preservation, past digital, right? You go, to, you'd go down to the IMAX theater, and they're actually projecting in not digital, laser, and they're so already technology in my world technology is moving past it, past, past, past. So I think you're still going to see this, and it's a question of quantity, and then I hate to use the word quality, but I think it has to do with kind of the amount of money that's put put into that and the power that individuals have with each particular um, product if that makes if that makes any sense um, I think also that you're seeing a lot of changes in terms of um, the contracts that are being written um, and in terms of who controls what and exactly what choices can um, be made and by whom as well
3: Could you go a little bit into the process of actually acquiring like home videos and stuff of that sort from like everyday people like living out in the country or whatever. Like how do you find those people? How do you acquire it and that kind sure. of stuff?
2: No, it's good. It's a good question. So we have um we have been very fortunate to have this program that we call the Texas Film <laughs> Roundup, where we will go to a community um and we usually partner with a local organization. So depending on you know, depending on where we are. Um, So when we went to to Beaumont, for example, we worked with um, Lamar University and we were there and we partnered with them and then we work on a very grassroots level to get the word out about our program. So we literally, I will talk to NPR, we will talk to the local newspapers, we'll talk to, we'll do just about anybody who will listen to us. Um, We will tell them about the program because what we do is we offer free digitization in return for a copy. Does that make sense? So if it's analog, if it's analog, we will we will do free digitization. We will clean everything, we will repair everything, we'll digitize it, and then we will return it to the owners with a digital copy. And it gets back even to some of what you're saying is that we know now that there's going to be a better transfer process. There already is a better transfer process than what we have. And so what we want to do is say, keep the originals with families, keep the originals in those communities, but what we're giving you is an access copy, and in return we get an access copy, that, that we use for educational use, that we use for educational purposes on our website. I, in all the years we've been doing it, we've probably only had about two or three people that once they realize that their films might go up online, they pull them back. Only happened a couple times. Um, one woman I remember, was, she ran, it was in El Paso, and she had given us her wedding video, and then like 10 months later she came in and she was like, I can't have anybody see my hair. <laughs> she came <laughs> back out and she took it away. But for the most part, people have been really excited to, to have a free service, because a lot of people, of course, have paid to do it already, but some people can't afford to have that done, or they don't know how to have it done. Um, we've had a much bigger challenge with born digital content because it's harder to communicate. People, you know, and it's hard to say to you guys, hey, if you take a great, well, I miss Vine, but if, if you had a great Vine, you know, we'd love to put that online, or even student projects. I had a student um, who did a great project uh, in one of her classes, and I said, do you think you'd be willing to donate that? Sure, it's much harder to communicate the value of collecting born digital. People understand that quid pro quo of a, of a free uh, digitization service. But it also takes forever because our program's been really successful. Knock wood, we've been really successful. So we'll go, when we went to, um, trying to think recently, uh, where were we? I think it was uh, maybe Midland and Odessa. I mean, we came back with 2,000 films. And, and we're a really small team, so it takes a really long time. But a lot of, you know, like maybe if your family has materials, they will take it to Walmart. That stuff's outsourced. If you take it to Costco or Walmart, it's sent to China or India, literally. They send them on ships, they send them overseas, they are transferred, they're brought back. That's an interesting aspect too, is the outsourcing of a lot of this. Um, and we keep everything in Austin. So that's what we do. How
1: much online of what you transfer?
2: So, <laughs> We do not put, it kind of gets back to this question of like, if you you collect everything, it's maybe the question about food selfies, right? I mean, (laughs) Lord knows we don't wanna keep everything. But what we try to do is with every collection, so every family, for example, we try to have at least a couple films from each collection so that we represent the contribution of those folks. But if they bring in 50 films, we do not put up all 50 films. We did initially because we needed the numbers, but we do not do that anymore. You can only take so many birthday parties. Children are darling, but honest to God. you were um, sharing some
1: of your stats, actually, of the, the kind of traffic you guys get? It's very yeah.
2: Impressive. I mean, I'm proud of it just because we're a little tiny group, right? It's not going to sound like anything compared to a YouTube stat or, you know, to anything. But, you know, we, we have been, in the time we've had streaming content, we have had uh, well over 15 million streams. And in this last year alone, we had 1.9 um, million streams over just one last year, where we get a big boost as it would not surprise you, is when we get picked up by Reddit, or we get picked <laughs> up, right, by, by some, we had a film go viral, um, and it, we had millions and millions of streams. What was it? It was a terrible wine commercial um, that was a parody of Star Wars, and it got picked up by Reddit, and got passed around and passed around, and the next thing you know, <laughs> we were like, what is going on? And sometimes it's actually kind of fun to try to track um, why certain films get picked up. Our first viral video was actually out of Pakistan, It got picked up on a Pakistani plane spotting site and went viral there. Now that was a hard one to try to figure out because we were like, you know. Sometimes also things take a little bit of a sordid turn. I'm just saying, what people are up to out there, you do not want to (laughs) know. And ladies, we have a lot of cheerleaders here in Texas, and sometimes it's like, no, 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 we are shutting that film down. Because I don't know where it goes, but it's going weird um, on the internet. So you never never know. It's it's actually really interesting. We do a top ten every month. We'll look at what are our top ten videos. What's always up there, one of my very favorites, which is um, when you study film history, one of the things they talk about a lot is... When Gone with the Wind, you guys Gone with the Wind kind of know it? So Gone with the Wind, they did a really famous thing called The Search for Scarlet. And they went around the south, and they went around different places to look. Who was going to play Scarlet? Well, so many films have done that. I mean, I can't, so many films, did it before then, did it afterwards. Well, they did that for Selena, when they did the Selena movie, right? And then J. Lo got cast, and people went crazy because it was J-Lo that got cast as Selena. We have the Selena casting call in San Antonio and that is always in our top 10 because all of these little girls that came dressed as Selena. It's really intense, actually, but it's amazing. Really? I'd be very intrigued if that is true. That means she probably sold, stole it. But that's fine. That's cool. Um, no, but that's, that's very interesting. But yeah, that, that, there's probably a lot of that out there. But, but for me, when we think about films that you sort of take in and you think there's a cultural resonance to it, that there's something really amazing about seeing thousands of young women come to try out to be Selena. So you never know.
1: Well, I have my one last question I ask every guest, which is, what are you watching now?
2: So probably you can guess, I watch a lot of things you would never want to watch. Again, uh, a lot of birthday parties. But um, I would say, you know, I was talking to some, I'm teaching, I teach a lot of film classes, which is great fun and I love it. But I do think, as we all know, that I think TV is way more interesting than the movies right now. I hate to say it. I do, I do watch movies, but I think television is, is more, um, is more fun for me right now. Um, I would say probably the show I have found the most perplexing. Um, can't decide if I like it or hate it, it's the Last Man on Earth. You guys even heard of this? Yeah. yeah? Very, very clever premise, which is that the, the world has been infected by a very, very bad disease, and one man thinks he's the only man left on Earth, and over the course of the first year, there are people that start showing up. So, that's a pretty weird one that I've watched. It's way out there, but it can be highly entertaining. Lots of former SNL people on it. So.
1: Well, that seems like a good
2: place to end yeah, this surreal. Very much. Thank you for coming. That
0: was great. Thank, you. Thank you for listening to Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and or hear past episodes, visit rtf.utexas.edu/slash mic. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with the assistance of Brett Siegel, Britta Hansen, and Annie Major, and the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us next time for another media industry conversation.